Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend our time in Romans 1.16 this morning. What a joy it is to be with you. It's a big day in the life of the church, and that's why this morning we're going to focus our attention not on a vote from the congregation, but a voice from heaven that comes from us uh, this morning from Romans chapter 1. If you'll follow along with me, here's what Paul says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pause to pray. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We're asking now, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts, that we would come with expectation for what you're going to do in our lives and unite us together in the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know all of us have been doing more home cooking, and maybe you've encountered a situation just like what our family has been through. We wanted to make some blueberry muffins not long ago, and we began to prepare it until we realized we didn't have all the ingredients we needed. We were missing the cooking oil, and so the best substitute we could come up with was to get some butter and to make those muffins, and we put them in the oven. Well, when we took them out, they weren't blueberry muffins. They were more like blueberry muffin cookies. They, they don't get me wrong, they were still delicious, but they were not the real thing. They were not according to the design of the recipe because a core ingredient was missing. Well, when we look at the New Testament, the entire Bible is laying out a picture for the church that is grounded in several core ingredients for which there are no substitutes. They are central to the life of the church. And Paul is going to lay that out for us this morning in Romans 1.16, what the New Testament foundations for the church should look like that should shape the next chapter of Central. Now think about with me for a minute what's happening here in the book of Romans. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, this place he is longing to go, and yet he has not been able to be there yet. And this passage in Romans 1.16 tells us why it is that Paul longs to be there with them. He wants to bring this gospel to them. And as we look together at this text this morning, we're going to notice that Paul lays out for us a vision for the church grounded in three core ingredients, the gospel, the mission, and the community that should shape every New Testament church, including the next chapter of Central. So notice with me as the verse begins, what we're going to see here is a first core ingredient, the gospel. Paul says there, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, he's telling us that the gospel must be the center of what a church is focused on. He speaks there about the idea of shame, and shame is obviously a motivator in our culture today. You think even in this lockdown, the way that shame can drive us. One of the reasons we're practicing social distancing right now is a sense of shame, that we wouldn't want to be the type of person that through our contact with someone else causes them to be infected with this disease. Or maybe when it's time to jump on that next Zoom call or FaceTime, you feel that sense of shame because you don't look as presentable as you feel like you might need to in order to turn on that video camera. Shame can often drive our lives, but that's not just true in 21st century America. That's true all the way back from the Garden of Eden. Because if you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve eat forbidden fruit, what do they do? They are overwhelmed by shame, and as a result of that shame, they hide from God. They attempt to cover over their shame by sewing together fig leaves. They shift the blame to one another for what has happened in order to try to bring comfort in the midst of their shame. And what Paul is showing us here is this need to be unashamed of the gospel. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, what does it even mean to be ashamed of the gospel? 
And when you look throughout the whole Bible, what you find is a pattern of being ashamed of the gospel is when the people of God reject the promises of God. And of course, that happens first in the Garden of Eden, but you see it all throughout the sweep of Scripture. Think about with me when Israel is in the wilderness, when they are coming into the promised land, they are stuck there for 40 years and they grumble against God and they doubt His goodness. Or maybe after they enter into the promised land, the people began to clamor for a king just like the nation surrounding them rather than trusting in God to be their king. Or if you fast forward to the New Testament, we see uh, Peter denying Jesus three times just as Jesus had foretold he would do. Or even in the final book of the Bible in Revelation, Jesus issuing a warning to the church of Laodicea that they had left their first love. Being ashamed of the gospel we find throughout the Bible is when the people of God reject the promises of God. So the question we should be wrestling with is why would anyone think that Paul is ashamed of the gospel? When we look at the New Testament, we think of Paul in a sense as a spiritual superhero, as if he can do nothing wrong and yet he is defending his commitment to the gospel here in ways that raise the question that some must have doubted whether or not he was ashamed of the gospel. And the reason for that might have been that they were wondering, what's taking you so long to get to Rome? Why haven't you come to be with us? Are you really committed to the gospel enough in order to meet us here? But we know that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. And yet we see in the life of Paul, recorded in the book of Acts, that not long before this, he was in fact ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't one who was proclaiming the gospel. He was persecuting those who proclaimed the gospel. And what happened? Jesus met him there on the Damascus roads and changed his life. Before that, he was holding the coats of those who were stoning others. When he came to faith, the people of God were afraid of him, knowing what he had previously done. But he moves from persecution to proclamation. He, he goes from being unafraid of the gospel to now being unashamed of the gospel. And what is this gospel? When we see it in the New Testament, in the original language, this word gospel means good news. It was most commonly used whenever a military would go out from their city and fight an enemy and win the victory, they would send a messenger back to proclaim good news to the people that an enemy had been defeated. So I know a couple of seasons ago, we were there in Kyle Field, my family and I, and many of you were gathered together when A&M came back and won that seven overtime game against LSU. What an exciting moment. But I'm sure there were people that you know, perhaps some in your family who were watching that game at home late. They started falling asleep because the Aggies weren't playing well, and they went to bed with the assumption that night that the Aggies had lost. And you got to be the one the very next morning when they woke up to tell them of this unexpected, unbelievable victory that had just happened the night before. Well, how much more so is that what the Bible is laying out for us to do with the gospel? It's not a football victory. It's not a military victory. It's a spiritual victory bought by Jesus Christ as he defeats Satan, sin, and death, and conquers the grave as a result of it. And that gospel is laid out for us all throughout the New Testament. But perhaps one of the simplest and most concise expressions of Paul's view of the gospel is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And here's what he tells us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
In a sense here, Paul is speaking of a great exchange that happens, that on the cross, Jesus takes on our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He takes on our judgment and he gives us his joy. There's this exchange that happens for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. We're united to him by faith so that we now stand before God holy, blameless, set apart, delivered. Do you remember the first time you believed the good news? My wife grew up in West Texas out in Abilene in a family that didn't go to church every Sunday. And she started going to a Christian camp each summer during middle school with some friends. But her dad, while Cammy was in middle school, had a, a, an awakening to the faith at a spiritual retreat. And he came home that Christmas and announced to the family in a family meeting that they were going to start going to church. And so they began to go to church, and she began to regularly hear the gospel. And it wasn't long after that that the Lord rescued her from her sin and ransomed her and brought her into his kingdom. And she came to faith as a middle schooler there. And I wonder even if this morning there are some of you who are in middle school right now, and the Spirit is working in your life in the same way that she does, and you need to open your heart to the gospel of Jesus. Or maybe you're a dad that hasn't prioritized the church and God is challenging you to do just like Cammie's father did and reawaken your family's commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is calling us to here this morning is to be unashamed of the gospel. And that's what I love about this church. When I think about the last generation here at Central this is a church that is unashamed of the gospel. We can think about that in the way that expositional preaching is at the heart of this church. Or I can think of the way that we are so committed to reaching the next generation through survival kits that help children move to salvation and to baptism. Or the way the gospel is a foundation driving our culture of discipleship in our life groups. Or the way that we serve those with special needs. The gospel is the center of this church and that must continue. We will continue to be unashamed of the gospel in the next chapter. We're going to be committed to the inerrancy of the Bible. We're going to be committed to the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We're going to be committed to taking the gospel to all nations. Why? Because what we believe shapes both who we are and how we live. So in the next chapter, you may have a different pastor, but we are going to have the same gospel. But notice the way that this text moves on here. In the middle of the verse, we see a second foundation from, for the church, and that's the mission. Look back at what Paul says there. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, Paul is showing us that our gospel message drives a gospel mission. And as we look throughout the New Testament, we see that the mission of the church is a mission of discipleship. It, we are called to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God, declaring and displaying the power of God for salvation to all those who would believe. Now, Paul had experienced this power of God himself on the Damascus Road. Do you remember that moment? He's walking along, hardened in his heart, and yet a blinding light comes upon him, a voice from heaven speaks to him, and he experiences the power of God and salvation that changes everything for him. And he goes from being a persecutor of the gospel to a proclaimer of the gospel. There's this pattern that emerges in Paul's life where God doesn't look out there and say, who is the best fit right now in order to be the one who I send on mission? And, and, uh, instead, what we find, what is commonly pointed out, that in the scriptures, God doesn't call the prepared, he prepares the called. 
He calls Paul, he equips him, and he sends him out on mission. And I'm trusting the Lord in this time that over the course of the last 15 years of my ministry that he's been doing just that, preparing me perhaps for this next mission that he's called me to. And I trust even now he is working in every one of your hearts to prepare you for the mission that he has for us. Now, a friend of mine was doing family devotions in her home not long ago with her kids, and she asked them the question, how are we saved? And the response from their eight-year-old is, by staying indoors. That's the way it feels right now in this moment of coronavirus. It seems as if people all around us are living by the mantra that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from Dr. Fauci. And so there's a situation in which imagine we fast-forwarded several months into the future and a cure for coronavirus has been found. A company in a distant country has discovered it, and they've perfected something that will ensure that people can live. Now, imagine in that setting, if that that company in that country hoarded that knowledge to themselves, they kept it for their own people, they restricted it to their own country instead of sharing it widely for all to benefit from it. That wouldn't make any sense, right? It, It wouldn't match up with the need of the moment. They've got the only means of deliverance from an invisible enemy, and it would make no sense for them to withhold it from others. And yet, how often is that true for us in the church? We have been given the only way of deliverance from an invisible enemy, not physical death that comes through a virus, but spiritual death that comes through our sin. That only way is deliverance that comes from Jesus. And Paul is speaking to us here from Romans 1.16, calling us to a mission of declaring this gospel. But he also speaks there not of the nature of the mission, but who it's for. If you notice there in that section, he says it's for everyone who believes. So there is a free offer of the gospel that Jesus died for all people and he is calling us to proclaim that gospel to every one of us around him. Perhaps even you who tuned in this morning, you don't normally come to this church or watch this live stream, but you knew something was happening today in the life of the church and you've tuned in and maybe you aren't walking with the Lord. You don't know what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. The call of the gospel to you this morning is for salvation, that this message is for you. Our church has been put on mission to reach you. Paul speaks there of reaching everyone who believes. That our our mission is not just one of evangelism, but also one of discipleship. They were both to reach and to teach. And that heart for discipleship we see exuded right in the very beginning of Jesus' resurrection ministry when he speaks in the Great Commission, calling us to make disciples of all nations. And that's what I love about this church that mission of discipleship that drives us, the way that each week as you meet in your life groups, we are growing together in the faith, the way that legacy adults are serving across this church and finishing well in the last chapter of your life, the way that we're reaching out to this community at Mary Branch Elementary and other places to take the gospel in service to those around us, and the way that we are going to the nations in Honduras and elsewhere so that we can join Paul's call right here to be faithful to the gospel mission that he's called us to. I mean, just imagine. Imagine the people that we have the opportunity to reach in the days ahead. Right now, there's a single mom in this city who's lost her job and her kids are home from school and she's crunching numbers. She doesn't know how she's going to be able to make ends meet or what she's going to do to take care of them. And she's in a moment of desperation that may open herself to Jesus. 
There are college students from A&M and Blinn who have traveled home and are finishing a semester and will be headed back to here in, the, in a future semester, and they're going to come back looking for answers that textbooks can't provide. Or maybe there's middle schoolers or high schoolers right now who are killing time on their phone or playing games, and the emptiness of everyday life is causing them to search for something more. Or maybe there's even a widow in one of the assisted living facilities right here. And it doesn't even feel any different that the facility is on lockdown and not allowing visitors because no one comes and visits her anyway in this moment. Each one of these people need Jesus, and God is calling Central on the next chapter to reach them by fulfilling the mission that Paul has laid out for us. You see, in the next chapter of Central, you may have a different pastor, but we will have the same mission. But notice the way that this passage ends. At the end of verse 16, Paul gives us a third foundation for the New Testament church, and it's that of community. Do you see how he finishes the verse? He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul speaks here of the way the gospel brings together a community of believers. And this sense of community is obviously front of mind for everybody right now during this shutdown. Because some of the common ways that we experience community are, are not possible. In fact, we're doing things we could have never imagined. I mean, just this week on the 21st, we had Aggie Muster, and we couldn't gather together in Reed Arena. Instead, we had to be gathered around digital devices in order to declare here for others. Or our Consol's high school team had a parade that went down the street as they congratulated the students on their shortened season. Perhaps even some of you have been a part of funerals that you couldn't attend in person to care for that, those loved ones that are in the midst of loss. Instead, you've had to tune in through Facebook Live. We sense a loss of community around us. We've never been more connected, and yet we've never been more confined. But when we look at the New Testament, it gives us a picture of the church that is centered on community. Think about the way the New Testament even describes the church in various places, the images that it uses. So it talks about the way that the church is a body made up of many members, or it's a temple that is made up of many stones, or a family that is made up of many people. There's these images there of unity and diversity that bring together community, and that's precisely what Paul is highlighting here at the end of Romans 1.16. He speaks there, if you look back, that the way the gospel comes to the Jew first. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the Jewish people are the people of God marked out in the Old Testament. And as Paul tells us elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Those promises date back to Genesis 12. When God speaks to Abraham and tells him that he will make him a people of many nations who will outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, or even the numbers of times that coronavirus is referenced in the news. There will be a multitude of people that are gathered in this nation that are marked out as the people of God. But the, the shocking thing of what Paul says here is not that God is keeping his promises to his people, but that God is taking his promises beyond his people. That's what Paul speaks of here when he says, also to the Greek that the Gentiles would be grafted in, in Christ, and included in the promises of God that he had laid out. In other words, it's not just for physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham that come through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly why the Apostle Paul, elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3 and verse 6, says this, 
The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And if you look at the life of Paul, as described in the book of Acts, he is a missionary to these Greeks. He is sent on mission to reach these Gentiles who have been made partakers. Now, there was division between Jews and Greek. There was a hostility that existed during that culture there that is deeper than any of the divisions that we feel even today, whether that's Republican and Democrat, or maybe Aggies and Longhorns, or perhaps those who love essential oils and those that can't stand him. All those dividing walls those hostilities that exist between us were nothing compared to what we saw in that culture between Jew and Greek. And yet the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that in the gospel, God has torn down the dividing wall that separated us and he has united us in Christ. That is the foundation for our community. In other words, the gospel turns competitors into community by uh, replacing hostility with humility. What Paul is showing us in Romans 1.16 is that the message of Jesus brings us into a relationship with God that serves as the foundation of our relationship with one another. Now, over the last two, three weeks, Cammie and I have had the chance to spend at least 30 Zoom calls with hundreds of you around the congregation. And it's just been a joy to get to know you some, for you to get to know us. And I feel like I've been inside many of your homes, even though I haven't had a chance to be there yet. And it has been a great start to fostering the kind of community that Paul lays out for us here. But you and I both know something. That when we sit around the screen and we look at it and it feels like it's, uh, we're all looking at each other in boxes as if we're in the opening segment of a Brady Bunch episode, that there's something good about it, but it's less than what God intended it to be. Because digital fellowship is no replacement for physical community, for the biblical community that Paul shows us here in Romans 1.16. And in the next chapter of this church, we want to be a church that prioritizes the biblical mandate for community. And what that means is that we want to have all our generations united together around the gospel. We want legacy adults connected with preschoolers. We want special needs adults connected with uh, student ministry leaders. We want our college students to learn from the core families in this church and to see Jesus at the center of what God is calling us to. You know, in the next chapter of this church, you may have a different pastor but we will pursue the same community. Now, I remember right where I was sitting over here in this section on the very first Sunday that this new location opened. I was a college student back in 2003 when we had our first Sunday here. I remember what life was like at Coulter, and I remember walking into this room, and the whole place was full. There was this sense of excitement in the moment. There was both excitement and uncertainty. We were excited about what God was about to do, but we didn't know quite what it was going to be like. And I wonder for some of you today if you feel that same type of atmosphere, that even though this room is not full of people like it was then, in fact, it's quite empty, there is also that sense of excitement and uncertainty. Not because we're changing locations, but perhaps we're changing leaders. And what I want you to know for me this morning is I feel like the Lord is bringing Cammie and I home. This is the place that we met and married. This is the place where I wrestled with my call to ministry. It's the first church that I served on staff. It's where I was licensed and ordained. But I don't just feel at home here because of my 
biography, but because of this church's commitment to exactly what Paul is calling us to here in Romans 1.16. These three guiding principles that should shape the church. And what I want us to wrestle with this morning as we bring this time to a close is that in the next chapter of this church, we are going to be unashamed of the gospel. We're going to be laser focused on what Romans 1 calls us to here, to be faithful in our pursuit of the gospel, the mission, and the community. Let's pray together. Father, we're coming here in dependence on you. Your word tells us that apart from you, we can do nothing. And this morning, we're asking you to help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, we long to keep the gospel at the center of this church, and we're asking even now that you would grow our heart for your mission of discipleship and renew our commitment to community. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time with an opportunity for all our church members to respond through voting. But first, just think for a minute of the way that God may be working in your life even now. We don't want to miss that opportunity. Perhaps the Spirit is working at your heart, showing you your need for salvation. We want to invite you this morning to repent of your sins to put your trust in Jesus and to follow Christ. Or maybe you're ready to join this community and go on mission with us. We want to invite you to let us know how we can pray for you or to reach out about next steps for membership. In whatever way the Lord is working in your life this morning, let's respond as he leads us.